I, I want the world to know that I'm Jewish. I want the world to know that we're still here, that we're fighting, that we're survivors, and that we're proud of who we are. And we're not going to hide. And we can't, like, I mean, we, are, we have the blood of the Maccabees and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprisers and the Bar Kokhba Revolt and all of these different incredible people and groups from our history running through our veins. And I really see that Jewishness is not ours. It's not mine. We're just caretakers of it for the next generation. And I think creating this culture where we're not afraid to show our Jewishness. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Corin podcast. On this week's episode, we are joined by Ben M. Freeman, a, a longtime friend of our, my co-host Alex. And when Alex told me that he wanted to bring one of his mates on the podcast, I have to admit I was a little skeptical. Um, but reading through uh, Ben's recently published book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, uh, in advance of our interview with Ben, um, and speaking to him, getting to know him over the uh, time that we had together. Um, it was really amazing to hear Ben's uh, insights and ideas. Um, and I really think that he has uh, a really important and unique, refreshing voice on Jewish identity and Jewish pride that is so needed uh, in 2021. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ari. I'm, I'm glad that you got to see, I got to speak to Ben. Um, I met him a number of years ago, uh, whilst we we're both living in Hong Kong, which is where he still lives. Uh, he was out there as the, he was director of the Holocaust and Tolerance Centre. Um, Antisemitism is a topic we wanted to explore on the podcast uh, for a long time now, and, and recent events has sort of really pushed us uh, to create this episode. Um, and so I'm glad that Arie, uh, you um, found Ben's uh, insights to resonate with you uh, and I hope our listeners do too. Uh, so let's jump straight in. We're joined now by Ben M. Freeman who is um, an educator and campaigner uh, focusing on anti-semitism uh, and the rise of anti-semitism in, uh, in the modern age. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, we actually go back a long way, Ben and I. Um, ben lives in Hong Kong uh, which is where we met um we're very very grateful uh, that you're here with us um just to get the conversation flowing why don't you tell us tell our listeners uh, about yourself sort of how you got into the, the the role you find yourself now so i guess i started life um i guess i started my professional life as a holocaust educator and that is where we met i was in hong kong as the director of education for the holocaust center here and that really was my primary interest and it was the focus of my work um and then I kind of found myself back in the UK with the rise of Corbynism. And I realized that while I had been talking specifically about the Holocaust, the story of anti-Semitism was obviously much bigger and it was still being written today. And we were experiencing another resurgence of cyclical anti-Jewish hate. And I joined Twitter to take part in the fight against Corbyn because I kind of couldn't believe what was happening. I'd, I'd, I'd always known that left-wing anti-Semitism existed. I experienced it at university. I think all of us did. Um, but it was not in the centre of the of British political life. It was kind of more in the extreme. It was in the fringes. It was with the students. It was not the leader of the opposition. So that experience led me into this role because I wanted to educate. Because I am an educator. I'm a teacher. And I saw a lot of people commenting and taking part in outrage fests. And this person said this, and Corbyn said this, and it's so awful. And they were right, it was awful. 
but nobody was really offering an explanation as to why he said what he said or why certain things were happening that were happening. And I wanted to help people understand and it really took off from there. So I, I'm active on Twitter and then I laterally became active on Instagram, but I run webinars kind of, again, educating people. And I try with my content to always be educational, not just taking part in Outrage Fest. And then I wrote my book. I started writing in October 2019. And I saw two things during the fight against Corbyn. One was the British Jewish community was really a beacon of pride. It was absolutely remarkable that Jews from all walks of life came together to say enough is enough. And, you know, the Jewish world is fragmented and it was kind of remarkable that you had Orthodox rabbis and Reform and liberal rabbis signing letters together. So it was very unifying and, and it made me very proud. But then I also saw particularly high profile left wing Jews be unable to recognize the threat. They just couldn't say that Corbyn was a racist, that he was an anti-Semite. And I realized that they were suffering from A, internalized anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism, but B, they were also suffering the hangover of the keep your head down policy, which was the kind of official, unofficial policy of the Jewish world when we were younger that was keep your head down, don't say anything, get on with it. And I realized that A, it wasn't working and B, it wasn't good for our kind of collective and individual self-esteem. And that inspired me to write the book. And that's kind of where I find myself now talking about the book, publicizing it and trying to empower people. How, I mean, how, well, can you tell us a bit more in terms of like personal experiences you had um, things that might have also like anything else that sort of impacted your decision to write the book, things that you put in the book, things that you saw firsthand, anything like that, that sort of what made you kind of write the book and write the book as it is? So I'm also gay and proudly gay and I had been on a journey to LGBTQ plus pride, you know, and in my early 20s and late teens, I really reached rock bottom. I had a very difficult experience with coming out, as many LGBTQ people of kind of our generation did. Um, and I had to, first of all, accept myself and then go on the journey to pride. But the thing that started that journey was a very simple realization, which is kind of obvious. But I do think it's uh, something that we need to internalize and accept was that I had done nothing wrong. I was like a kid in Glasgow and I happened to be gay and the world around me had told me that there was something wrong with that and I had internalized it. And I had to understand that I had done nothing wrong. I'd committed no crime even though I was being punished for something. And that realization led me on this journey. And I think it's a similar realization for Jewish people. We have experienced millennia of hate, of cyclical hate that has, you know, impacts us in more ways than we can count. And I think it's so important that we understand We've done nothing wrong. This isn't our fault. This isn't our problem. And the fight against Corbyn was very impactful. And also my experience at university. I experienced left-wing anti-Jewish racism every single day at university. I was called a racist, an imperialist, a white supremacist, a colonizer. And I didn't really understand why. Because I was in I had been in Israel the year before. And I was with a progressive um, youth movement, with RSYNET, a reform youth movement. So we were talking about the conflict. And it was fairly critical of Israel, actually. So for me to go to Glasgow and be called that just because I believed that Israel had a right to exist, just because I'd spent time there and that my family lived there, it was incredibly shocking. And I, you know, I came out at university, I came to terms with my sexual orientation, and I saw the way I was treated as a gay man and how I was treated as a Jew. And I saw the double standards firsthand because they embraced me because of my sexual orientation and they absolutely rejected me because I was Jewish. And that, I think, has been very impactful. And it you know, speaks to David Badil's book, Jews Don't Count, right? 
I experienced that firsthand. You know, people are constantly asking me to define my identity as a gay man. What are your pronouns? Are you gay? Are you queer? Are you, L are you LGBTQ plus? And the minute I talk about my identity as a Jew, I'm told, whoa, 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 this is who you are. And it's just so unbelievable, that double standard, and it's unacceptable. And I think that because, and I, I've spoken to quite a few LGBTQ plus Jews, and I think that we have common experiences. And one is that we come to our Jewish identities so much earlier. You know, I was a proud Jew 20 years before I even accepted that I was gay. So my Jewish identity has always kind of come first. And I think that that has led me to fight for the Jewish people. Because, you know, I could also be fighting for the LGBTQ plus community, and I don't really. I mean, I have at times, but my primary focus is the Jewish community because A, there aren't enough of us doing it, and B, we're not getting the attention that we absolutely deserve, especially in comparison to other minorities. And I see the, the double standard. You know, I, if I say, oh, I'm, I don't identify as white, I identify as Jewish, people are like, yeah, but you have white privilege. And they would never say these things to me if it was about my sexual orientation. If I was talking about being cis, not being trans, people would never jump down my throat. And it's kind of unbelievable when you experience it firsthand. And, and it's, you know, it's not theoretical, it's my lived experience. We're really very keen to, to jump into your book and sort of how you've applied uh, the life lessons you've learned as a gay man um, to your Jewish identity as well. Uh, but before we do, um, I, I'm certainly speaking for myself here, but I imagine I'm also speaking on behalf of a number of our listeners. Um, you use a number of, sort of phrases and bits of terminology that perhaps might be unfamiliar um, or you know you might be using them in a slightly different context uh, to to how we're used to them um, for example um, you know you tend to shy away from using the, the word anti-semitism rather Jew hatred or anti-Jewish racism um, and even when you do use the, the word anti-semitism I know there's a lot of debate about whether it should have a hyphen should not have a hyphen um, so perhaps it would be a good idea before we do jump into your, uh, discussing your book um, to define a few of those terms uh, and sort of what we mean as we say them. So I'd say yes. I mean, I, I say Jew hatred or even anti-Jewish racism, which is really, they all mean the same thing. I don't really like the word anti-Semitism because it was created by racists against us and it actually is racist in its content. So anti-Semitism, Jew hatred anti-Jewish racism, hatred of Jews, they all mean the same thing, essentially. Um, other, I guess, key terms would be Zionism. I mean, I actually haven't mentioned that. The Zionism is the movement of self-determination to return the Jewish people to their indigenous homeland, despite what many people say. Um, Left-wing anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism was born out of the Soviet Union, and it really is focused on Israel as the collective Jew. Although we are starting to see some kind of crossover. Um, this idea of whether Jews, light-skinned Jews specifically, are white. That's a conversation which stems from the United States. And what you argue really depends where you sit on the political spectrum. So the right say we're not white, and they say that we're engaged in this plot to destroy white America and white society. And then the left specifically say that we are white, and that as white people, we are responsible for all of the oppression of non-white minorities. Um, and that sort of that, the right-wing view there is from a couple of years ago, there was the, uh, the march... Uh, in Charlottesville, whether they were shouting, you know, the Jews shall not replace us. That's that's all part mm. of that, right? I mean, so something. Absolutely. I guess I take it that a step further. You touched on this before. Um, you mentioned before privilege, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's not a word that, for me personally, I never really thought about. Um, 
for better or worse, I don't know. Um, it was mentioned um, last week, uh, well, famously, well, I guess a couple of weeks before we recorded, uh, John Oliver, um, who I am, I was, I'm not sure where I stand, a fan of, um, did a piece on his show um, about the current situation in Israel. And uh, someone they were described as the Israeli John, John Oliver, a comedian here in Israel, Tom Aharon, responded to John Oliver and he said, claiming that imbalance is moral is the privilege of those who don't need to make the choice between their own safety and their care for others. Um, and I never really like considered how that question of privilege comes into this discussion of Israel and anti-Semitism. Um, and something you mentioned in the book is in terms of, instead of talking about privilege, talking about advantage, disadvantage. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the, world, the word privilege at one time was very useful. But I think that we need to move beyond it now because I don't think it has been used correctly. I think that people use it to denote an immovable status. You're privileged or you're an oppressor. That's kind of the way the people, particularly on the left, see the world. The reality is, though, each of us have advantage and disadvantage depending on the situation that we're in. And we can have those things at the same time. So I always, in the book, I give an example. If I'm walking down the street with my partner and I'm wearing my kippah, we could be attacked because we're a same-sex couple or because I'm clearly Jewish. A black or an Asian heterosexual person walking down the street with their different sex partner with no kind of other ethno-religious marker could be attacked because of the colour of their skin, but not because of their sexual orientation or, as I said, this other ethno-religious marker. So at that moment, we both are experiencing advantage and disadvantage. I also think that the word privilege can be very triggering for Jewish people. I mean, that is one of the oldest and most dangerous accusations about Jews. So when people talk about Jewish privilege or when they talk about how wealthy Jews are, they talk about how, you know, how privileged we are, it, it speaks more, it says more than just, I think, the people who are using it might understand. For us, it's very triggering and it connects to, you know, thousands of years of hate and it's also one of the reasons that people don't rate anti-jewish racism they don't think it's important they don't think it exists because oh well you guys are privileged and you're powerful so how can you be victims of prejudice or how can you experience prejudice and i think that america i would say unfortunately has existed in a binary and the binary is black and white and that has then been imposed onto the rest of us i mean we see it being imposed onto the israel-palestinian conflict which is so absurd you know, that might be their experience, but it isn't our experience in Britain. It's not the experience in, with regards to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And I think that we have to be very careful not to engage in this cultural colonialism. And I also think that even in the United States, they need to be always working to advance the conversation. And I think it's like the conversation went to a certain point with regards to critical race theory and privilege and all of this stuff, and then it has stopped moving. And if you speak out against it, you're referred to as a racist, which is... It's complex and it's difficult because we have people to, to discuss if we ex ever expect to move the conversation forward, if we ever expect to solve these issues. I mean, there's so many things that we want to, we want to discuss. It's, it's difficult to try and figure out what, what to address first. I mean, so you mentioned David Baddiel before. Um, again, context, David Baddiel's a comedian, a journalist and an author in the UK. He's Jewish. Um, he's also just released a book um, called Jews Don't Count. Uh, we're also both alumnus of the, alumni of the same elementary wow. school, as, as I'm sure you can <laughs> tell. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how to respond to that, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he, in his book, um, he, and I think you addressed it as well, Ben, the, this idea of 
like uh, Jews are Jews being attacked from from both sides. They're both Jews are both, um, you know, uh, sort of conniving and trying to sort of replace, but at the same time they're trying to oppress and sort of act as you know, overlords or whatever it is. Um, and this idea of sort of erasive, um, uh, what's the word? Erasive. Um, Antisemitism. Antisemitism. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Erasive antisemitism. Thank you. Um, where essentially, like in conversations about racism, in conversations about um, privilege or whatever, that, that Jews are just ignored, um, which has its own dangers. Um, you know, it's not quite the same thing as being you know beaten up on the street, but it's certainly dangerous. Um, as you were talking before about you know certain privileges being an advantage, um, whether it's you know, to do with race or gender or, or uh, sexual orientation. Um, and you mentioned wearing a kippah. And so I remember you you messaged me a year or so ago, maybe more, that you, sort of, you had started wearing your kippah more often, if not all the time. Um, and sort of as a, a an outward identifier of being Jewish, you know, the three of us are light-skinned Jews. Um, and this idea, you mentioned it, and it's something I've always struggled with, struggled with as well. So the conversation started as a kid when someone says, like, oh, if Israel ever played England in the World Cup, like, who are you going to support? Um, and they're sort of like, that sort of sows the seed of, like, am I Jewish? Am I, am I white? When you fill in a census, are you, are you white? Are you other? Um, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, you message to start, you'd start wearing a kippah. Um, there was, I saw a post uh, also last week from, I think it was Jew in the City uh, on Instagram talking about how there's a there's a conversation that every black parent has with their son um that you know at some point they're going to be profiled by the police and at some point they're going to be stopped or whatever it is and there this is how you need to behave or this is how you need to react um and she mentioned that there's a similar conversation that jewish parents have with their sons um that you know when you go out don't wear a kippah when you go out you know don't wear a yarmulke that put a hat on um, or if you're going in certain areas, just take it off and put it in your pocket so you don't you don't identify. And I, I remember giving my parents um, probably too much grief uh, by refusing to do that, by, you know, always walking around with my kippah. And, you know, I, uh, I've been accused of being hot-headed. I don't think that's an accusation that, that would not hold up today as well. Um, but I, I wonder um, sort of what your experience is. As in, we were talking before we started recording that Hong Kong is a, a very safe place to yeah. be. I think more because just the the local Chinese population just don't don't know anything about Jews. Certainly, when when we were living there, we'd have like local Chinese groups coming to visit uh, the shul that, that uh, there and sort of talk about it. and sort of the stereotypes they're aware of were all coming from a very positive place. And they were very like welcoming, but they weren't sort of aware of um, uh, sort of anti-Semitism. There was certainly no Jew hatred that we encountered. I definitely didn't, didn't encounter it. I can't imagine you have either in Hong Kong. Um, so I wonder what your experience is and sort of what your thoughts are in terms of wearing kippah and sort of actively, sort of outwardly showing Jewish pride. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have not experienced, I've never experienced anti-Semitism or Jew hatred from the local population. I have from expats. And I remember it happened when yeah. actually we were all living there and I remember talking to you about it. I went to schools and the t other teachers were saying things to me, which is kind of crazy. But I think for me, it was quite a good place to start wearing the kippah because it really was here where I started wearing it every day. And I think when you're making a change like that, you have to kind of just incorporate it into your life. So 
now it's just normal. And yeah, I don't think the I don't think the people here really have any understanding of what I'm doing. I think people just think, oh, that man's wearing a very small hat, um, which is funny, I think. And you know, if anyone ever asks me, if the kids at school ask me, I'll explain to them. But I did wear it in the UK. Um, the, I think the last time I was in the UK, just before COVID, I'd started wearing it in Hong Kong, so I was wearing it in the UK, and I was much more aware. I was much more aware that there was a cultural context, that I was marking myself as different. And I certainly think that is something that we need to come to terms with, especially now, you know, I had a conversation with my mum uh, last week and I was like, maybe you need to hide your mog and if you're going out. You're like, just tuck it in, you know, just be aware. And that is not a conversation that I really ever think of here. But for me, it's, I want the world to know that I'm Jewish. And I know that some people say, well, why would you be proud of something you can't change? Or, you know, why do we have to go down this road of identity politics? And I, I think that we have to be very careful with identity politics, but not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There are some aspects of it which are good. Owning our identities, being proud of our identities, being comfortable with our identities, and kind of staking our place in society. And that's why I wear kippah. And I do think it's interesting because I'm not particularly observant. I do do Jewish things but more to engage, and we've talked about this a lot, like with mm -hmm. the people and the ethnicity rather than, you know, the God, the divine aspect. But I, I want the world to know that I'm Jewish. I want the world to know that we're still here, that we're fighting, that we're survivors, and that we're proud of who we are and we're not going to hide. And we can't, like, I mean, we, are, we have the blood of the Maccabees and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprisers and the Bar Kokhba Revolt and all of these different incredible people and groups from our history running through our veins. And I really see that Jewishness is not ours, it's not mine. We're just caretakers of it for the next generation. And I think creating this culture where we're not afraid to show our Jewishness, where we're unapologetically demonstrating to the world that we're Jewish and we're proud and we're not going to hide, I think is so important for the continuation of our people, actually. Like, I think it's a really, Jewish pride has to be the future of the Jewish world. And whatever way it looks to different people, right? I mean, it's not going to look the same to every single person. But we're starting to see on Twitter and on Instagram, I, I'm seeing more people talk about wearing Mog and David, wearing their kippah. And I think that's kind of amazing that these young people are taking to this practice or to these customs to show that they're proudly Jewish. Right. It's really amazing. And so you, you mentioned before how there's this... Um... Certainly when we were growing up, and I imagine you know, generations before us, sort of the, the put your head down yeah. culture. And like the, respon the response to anti-Semitism, anti whatever it was, is to put your head down and sort of just like ignore it and, and let it go. Um, and, you know, so I, like putting on the kippah and walking around and being proud to where it is, it's definitely part of that. I mean, so you, it, there's uh, Rav Soloveitchik, you know, uh, the rabbi of, of the last, the, you know, uh, he passed away in the, in the 90s um, in one of his books, Cold Leaf Effect, he talks about how, like, the, the Jews of the Bible and the Jews of the Talmud were fighters. You know, you mentioned Bar Kokhba and the Maccabees, but in, even, like, Abraham and Moshe and, and whoever, you know, they're all, they all go to war. They all fight. They all stand up and they all, uh, they all um, you know, stand up for, for God and stand up for themselves, stand up for Israel. And at some point after Bar Kokhba, that, that, that died, that went away somewhere. Um, and he talked about it in the context of, of um, you know, the, the establishment of the state of Israel and the Six Day War, um, that like now is a time where Jews are able to feel uh, strong, st safe enough, or at least uh, brave enough 
um, to stand up for things mm. and to, to like proudly be Jewish. Um, I mean, it's it's very easy to, for like myself and Arya to sit in Israel and see what's going on in the news and see what people are posting on social media and saying like, oh, well, the Jews of New York and the Jews in LA and in London and wherever else, like when a, a pro-Palestinian rally, they start shouting like anti-Jewish chants or when they're driving driving through the streets of Golders Green um, and like shouting, you know, kill the Jews and, and, and rape their daughters. Like it's very easy for us to sit here and say, you know, like, well, why don't you fight back? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what, as as a Jew living in the diaspora and someone who is is very proudly Jewish, like what advice? What would you say? I don't know. What what are your thoughts on sort of how a person can take comfort? Obviously, you know we're not we're not advocating people go in guns blazing and sort of put themselves in physical danger. Um, but sort of what what do you think? And how does how does this idea of Jewish pride sort of strengthen or you know embolden Jews to be able to sort of stand up and, and fight back? I think it really plays a huge part in that because it tells us that we're worthy and it tells us that we're allowed to advocate for ourselves. Because particularly in the diaspora and the progressive world that we're, act- we're always told, no, now is not the time, your experience is less important than others. And actually that's not the case. Our experience is just as important as any other group's experiences. And we're allowed to advocate for ourselves. And it's something you said about after the Bar Kokhba revolt and after the exile, the Galut, it died and i think it was and you know and especially reflecting now we had our own state we had our own land for thousands of years and then we were dispersed and we became these tiny minorities that really were pawns of the greater powers in which we lived and i think that now obviously in 48 there was this kind of revival of amechad the global jewish community or one people but actually i think that social media has given us has furthered that concept because you know, this is the, the third event I've done today. And the first one was an Instagram Live with someone based in Canada. And the second was a, bit, a community based in Los Angeles. And we are feeling the strength in numbers again because we're connecting with one another. And yes, though we're still in the diaspora and we're still these tiny this tiny minority, we feel strong because we're connecting with each other all over the world, with Israel, with South America, South Africa. And I think that has played a really pivotal role in this kind of this this growth of Jewish pride and fighting back and I would say that we're allowed to advocate for ourselves we're allowed to expect certain treatment from those around us we're allowed to expect that our bosses if they engage in diversity and inclusion training for other people will also do it for Jews and I think that understanding that disconnect between what happens with other groups and what happens to us is really vital But I think, you know, as you said, we're not encouraging people to put themselves in physical danger. It's physical safety is paramount. But Jewish pride can also be, you know, expressed in the home. And and it's, we have to understand that there's spiritual resistance as well. Lighting the Shabbat candles is spiritual resistance. Saying Hamotzi, wearing a kippah, lighting the Hanukkah, saying Yartzeit, whatever it is, they're acts of spiritual resistance because we're acknowledging our Jewishness, we're actively engaging in it despite what the world around us says about us. And I think that there will be people like us who are outspoken and we will speak on platforms and we will talk to the non-Jewish world and we'll speak to other Jews. And that's fine for us. But even Jews who do not feel comfortable, who do not feel that they have the knowledge to do that, can still engage in this resistance. Because I said, we're caretakers. And if we're not being actively Jewish, how is the next generation ever going to learn what that means? Because it can't just be an idea. Jewish pride is not just an idea. It has to be rooted in 
our history, action, something really tangible. So I think that every single Jew, regardless where they are, can stand up and be proudly Jewish in whatever way kind of works for them. You mentioned before the idea of like um, owning our Jewish identity. Um, and I guess what we're seeing where others try to impose, you know, our identity onto us in a certain way. How have you seen, I mean, obviously in recent weeks there's been probably cases, but in general, like, have you seen that play out? Why do you think it's like, a, I guess, a danger? What are the solutions? And what are your I guess one of the ways I've seen it play out is this erasure of Jewish peoplehood and the identification of us as just a religious group. And I think that, you know, I'm told by non-Jewish people saying, well, I've got American Jewish friends and they say we're just a religion. And I'm like, with all due respect, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, we're an ethno religion and we're not ever going to erase the religious aspect. We're not going to detach ourselves from the concept of God, from monotheism. But we're also bigger than that. And, you know, as a gay man, that's really fortunate for me because I can engage and actively be Jewish without having to worry about what Leviticus says, right? You know, and I know that for people who are certainly more religious LGBTQ plus Jews, that is something they have to think about. Um, But for me, it's not. I'm like, well, I'm just going to ignore that. And we're part of the Jewish people. And that's great. And it really is great. I mean, we're part of a tradition that has lasted thousands of years. And we're still today, three British Jews, yes, one in Hong Kong, two in Israel, talking about Jewish identity. Like, that's pretty remarkable because we are a people, we're, we're an ethnicity, we're a religion, we're linked by so much. And yes, we're linked also by shared ancestry, which is something that many people want to pretend doesn't exist, but it does. So that is something I've seen a huge amount. So this idea that we're just this white religion um, is very frustrating. And I think it's harmful because firstly, there's the principle, the non-Jewish world do not get to define our identities. We are the ones who get to define our identities. And yes, as Jews, we're probably going to disagree with, with, with each other on certain things, but that's okay. There are our disagreements to have. The non-Jewish world should be listening if they're curious, but they don't need to take part in these discussions. And also, I think that, what, and we're seeing it play out in North America, where there's a whole generation of Jews who really don't know what it means to be Jewish, who are divorcing this concept of Zionism from Judaism. You cannot do that. It's They're so, into, they're really... They're the same thing, basically. We pray towards Jerusalem. You know, we have been obsessed about it for 2,000 years, and it's how we maintained our connection to our land, but also to each other With the when the diasporic communities were dispersed from one another. So to attempt to sever that and divorce it and take out which if not now in JVP do, is disgusting. And what it's going to do is lead for generations of Jews to misunderstand what it means to be a Jew. And again, it goes back to this role as caretaker. If we don't understand who we are, how will the future generations? And what's more, if we're purposefully manipulating who we are to fit in with this modern social justice world, then we are severing something that has existed really unchanged for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, I mean another example of it I've seen we see all the time we've seen for years but definitely recently you know you see in the in the debates and in discussions and the twitter arguments about you know with 
people who oppose the state of Israel trying to tell Jews what real Jews should think about the state of Israel. They'll show a picture of Naturi Carter and say, well, these great rabbis say, you know, this is what Israel is about. You know, they're the great rabbis, so surely you must believe in them. I feel like it's like a, that's like a classic, like, what do you mean? Like, how, why are you yeah. telling me who right, like, the also, great I mean, rabbis are? Something that, tell us that. Sorry to interrupt. There's, I think, a conversation that you and I had years ago that I'd never really thought about. That, like, there's no other minority group who are told what is and isn't racist. Whereas yeah. we're told all the time... Like, no, I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm being anti-Zionist. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm both Jewish and Zionist and I'm offended by what you're saying. Yeah. And like, there's no one yeah. else in the world who is given that treatment. Uh, and I think, it, again, it goes back to like, the put your head down and sort of just ignore it. It's like, oh, yeah, fine, maybe you're right. Like, you know, I, I, sorry, I'm sorry yeah. I'm offended. And like, this, there's, sorry, yeah, yeah, go on. And it's gaslighting. We're being gaslit on a global scale. And this is actually why I think in some ways the progressive world can be quite useful because it helps us understand our own experience a little deeper. So using specific language like gaslighting, like indigenous, I was never told that we were indigenous to the land of Israel. That was always just, that's our homeland. But what does that mean? Well, actually, there is, it's definable. We're indigenous. We, we tick all of the boxes of being an, an indigenous people. And yeah, I mean, we're being gaslit. And it's, you know, people talk a lot about assimilation or acculturation or integration. And what people really fail to see is that integration, healthy integration, where we are have hyphenated identities as British Jews, isn't necessarily easy. You know, as British Jews, we say prayers for the Queen, you know, every Shabbat. And I think it said all over the Commonwealth. And that's us pledging our loyalty. But what are we getting in return? Because it should be a two-way street. But because we are so grateful to be in Britain and we're so grateful to be in these countries, we fail to understand that it should be a two-way street. And actually, we need to understand that we're not coming to the table as an equal player because there's, what, 300,000 Jews in Britain, there's 65, 60 to 65 million non-Jews. And understanding that dynamic is really important. But also it just goes down to arrogance. You know, people will tell me, oh, this isn't anti-Semitic. I'm like, well, I'm Jewish, I'm Zionist. And actually, this is my work. This is what I've devoted my life to. So actually, I'm probably in a better position to tell you than you are to tell me. But there is this arrogance that we're not trusted with our own experience, which is just incredibly demeaning. So let, I want to kind of go into this a bit more. Um, something that I've been thinking about recently is that in England, I think we were definitely almost like trained to be to respond, you know, things like, how can you hold me, a Jew in Britain, accountable for the actions of a government, you know, a thousand miles away? While at the same time, we're also supposed to say, I stand by Israel unequivocally irrelevant of what it does. And then we and then suddenly we're surprised when they hold us accountable to that. Do you think like, like what's the next step? As in, it's, that's obviously not working. Um, but and yet. Again, maybe it's easy for me to say this here from behind my desk in Israel, but I feel like they haven't yet cottoned on that that's not working and maybe we need to try something else. Yeah, and I think that part of it also is we need to have honest conversations about Israel. I remember what I did, a, I, as I said, I did a gap here in Israel and I think when we first arrived, there was a garbage strike and it was like garbage was overflowing in the streets. So I was like, oh, this is not the land of milk and honey. I think that for sure there's a disconnect between it is milk and honey, but like two weeks ago, it's milk and honey. Yeah, precisely. It's kind of rotting on the street. And I think that people need to understand 
the disconnect as well as the connection between you know Medina Israel and then just Israel, right? I mean, like, what? How does how does that manifest? And I think that it is complicated. And I and I thought a lot actually about this dual loyalty trope. And I, I, maybe this is controversial. What I'm about to say, I do have dual loyalty. I love Israel. I support. Israel. I'm a Zionist, and I'm also British. And other people have those experiences too. Other people who are immigrant communities or diasporic communities are allowed to be British Indian or you know Italian American or whatever it is. They're allowed to have loyalty and a connection to two different places or more. And we're not. And that leads Jews to say things like, oh, I'm not responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. And recently that has really bothered me because we have to understand that the reason people are saying the things they say about Israel is because it's a Jewish country. Like I didn't vote for the government, you know, sure, I'm not responsible for that, but also I am connected to it. But also when you say, you know, would you say to a Muslim, are you responsible for ISIS? Israel's not ISIS. Israel is a, a democracy, a flawed democracy, but a democracy. And I think that we have to start having these honest conversations, which I guess it's breaking down the whole both sides, right? There's always this thing about we're trying to be nice. We're trying to be palatable. Like both sides do this. Um, I'm not responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. It's like, of course not, but I'm also not responsible for the actions of the British government or the British state, but I'm not, you know, forced to disavow it. And the only reason that we do that is because we're trying to show that we're good Jews. I'm Jewish, but I'm Zionist, but I know like, we have to start having honest conversations. As Jews, we are connected to that country, to that land, whether or not we're born there, whether or not we live there. And that's okay. And that is an experience echoed around the world. But when it comes to us, that's a problem. Right. I was going to say that, like, the... Um, this, this concept of oh, dual, dual... Sorry, dual loyalties. Like, I, when I was living in England, like, I, I certainly felt I was very proud to be to be British, I felt very fortunate to, to be to be British. My family's lived there for hundreds of years, um, but like that's that's for me. Like I'm allowed to have a dual loyalty. That shouldn't be an accusation. Um, I think we again. I've, I've been thinking about it a lot recently for obvious reasons. But something that's always sort of weighed in the back of my mind is, you know, because I, I still have family in the UK. Um, of like, where on my list? of reasons for making Aliyah is anti-Semitism. Um, because we made, as in, so my family and I, we made, that, we made Aliyah from Hong Kong. We've, we've said we encountered, or I certainly encountered no anti-Semitism. Um, I don't think from anyone, um, but certainly not from the local, the local population. Um, so when we like actually got on the plane and came here, anti-Semitism was very low down on the list. But now, you know, if we were to, if for whatever reason we were to leave uh, Israel, anti-Semitism would be probably number one um for like why we would why we wouldn't want to go or why we want to sort of stay here um and i think yeah this 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 idea that sort of you know that we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't with with the non-jewish world that yeah. either you're gonna you're gonna be accused of being sort of insidious and and trying to sort of usurp the power whatever it is or you're gonna be accused of being a, like an oppressor and a colonizer or you're gonna be accused of having a dual loyalty and you're like and everything's self-interested and it's just i this sort of and I've, I've been saying this to my wife sort of a lot over the last couple of weeks is what we you know talking about like something we just read it's like i don't care 
I care very deeply. Yeah. I care very deeply about anti-Semitism. I care very deeply about what's going on. But like, I don't care what you know some guy on Twitter has to say. I don't care about what someone in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the Daily Telegraph, or the Guardian, or wherever else. I don't care what they have to say because it's for me to decide what is anti-Semitic. It's for me to decide what is anti-Zionist. It's for me to decide, you know, what I want to to think and do. And I think Arya like made this point to me a few days ago on, on Shavuot how like Jews sort of just waking up to the fact that, like you know you can't support Israel but then disavow it but then be surprised when when that comes back to bite you yeah. that I shouldn't have like it's Zionism is so tied to certainly my Jewish identity and I think a lot of people's Jewish identity that like it, it I don't care what some politician has to say because you know this is my this is who I am it's in like my very genetic makeup um, to yeah. sort of care about Israel, to care about Jews in the diaspora, and care about Jews here, and, and whatever. And you know, you can. There are so many parts to an identity. And I think you mentioned this in, in in your book. There are so many parts to identity, and everyone is full of contradictions. And everyone's full of you know different um, you know different aspects. That and Jews and non-Jews, but we're the ones mm. who are being forced to define or or legitimize. You know certain parts of, of our identities yeah and i think it, well, what you're saying is jewish pride like we don't care we don't care what you think about us we can't change how you think about us and we're going to love ourselves anyway and i mean and again we we've seen recently in the last couple of weeks you know a justification for the state of israel people have said well we need israel because look what you're doing to us and yes that is true but also we have a right to that we have a right to statehood regardless whether there's anti-Jewish racism or not, that is our indigenous homeland, and we're allowed to reclaim it just as any kind of minority displaced people are allowed to reclaim their homeland. And I think that we have to start, it's like going back to basics, right? It's about saying, okay, actually, maybe we do have dual loyalty. No, we are allowed this state regardless whether they hate us or not. I think that we're constantly looking for justification, for reasons, for approval. And actually, exactly what you just said, we don't care. You've hated us for thousands of years. You show absolutely no sign of stopping. We can't force you to change. So fine, you do, you boo. We're going to turn inwards and we're going to cultivate ourselves and empower ourselves and make sure that we're okay because you've been putting us through all of this, you know, horrendous experiences for years. And we've been, I find it so humiliating. We've been begging to be accepted. Like, no, that is not what we do. We're not going to beg. We've not fought for thousands of years to have Jews today being like, oh, I'm going to disavow Israel to be accepted by the left. No, absolutely not. It's humiliating and we have to put an end to it. Right. I, I, we don't, I mentioned before the sort of the, the grief I put my parents through. And I think that, I think that's part of it as well. It's like, I'm, I'm just like, you have, yeah, you spent thousands of years mistreating us and thousands of years of, of abusing and, and trying, literally trying to murder us. And I'm like, you know, why should we care anymore? Like, we're we're gonna we're gonna do what we're gonna do. I there's I'm sure you've seen it. You may even shared it. There's there's a meme going around of like, you know, it speaks volumes that the Jews of the diaspora look at this tiny sliver of land in the Middle East being being yeah. like having being bombarded by rockets, and they say like, that's where I feel safest. I you know, and that does speak volumes, I think. But it's also at the same time like a wonderful thing that like, yeah. For the first time in, in, in whatever, like there is a safe place for, for Jews to be, and yeah, fine. Like, thankfully, it's quite it's been quite for the last well, quieter for the last few days. But you know, we do get bombarded by rockets. It is there is there are like real security concerns. But mm. unlike when Jews are living in the diaspora, there's a government, there's an army that's going to do something about it. 
Yeah, 100%. I think that I was asked this earlier and it, it sounds a little dramatic, but I, I would rather die in my homeland, surrounded by my people fighting than in the diaspora as a minority. Like that's not a position I I was never in, but it's not a position I ever want us to be in again. And when, you know, I'm in the middle of teaching a Holocaust class right now. And one of my students was like, do you think there could be another one? And I was like, yeah, 100%, but there wouldn't be because of Israel. And I think that there's so much to, like, there's so much to our connection. Even like Hebrew language, the fact that we speak modern Hebrew is one of the greatest acts of decolonization in the history of the world. I mean, really, the establishment of the state of Israel is probably the most successful act of decolonization in history. It's so remarkable. I quote this in my book. There's a guy called Charles Kaufman said that, you know, you walk down the street in Tel Aviv and the script that's on the ice cream, the glida, is the same script that was used two, three thousand years ago. It's so remarkable. I mean, our connection to that land is so... I mean, I think it's beyond really what a lot of people can understand. And I think that you're absolutely right. Jews are starting to wake up to this idea that, oh, we, that is our indigenous land. That is our homeland. And no one can sever this connection, even though there are people who try. And I think that's really important. We cannot allow, and you know, like you, and I think when people, when you, when you see these kinds of things, people are like, oh, you don't think that there's any criticism of the Israeli government. It's like, of course you can criticize the Israeli government in the way you would any government. Like, it's a democracy, therefore we, we're allowed to criticise it. But we're not talking about government, we're talking about the land and we're talking about our connection and the history and things that are provable. You know, this is evidenceable and I think that it has changed the entire landscape because we have a state. Yeah. Because the, people can't, I mean, they can touch us, but not in the way they had before, because Israel would come in and save us but that does not that is not the only reason that israel should exist it should exist because we're allowed a state in our land yeah i think one of the points that's definitely probably been missed over the last few weeks i mentioned tomorrow on before like the funny thing about having like these israeli comedians do response videos like john oliver is like these are the guys who are paid to literally rip netanyahu on a weekly basis week in week out yeah. like they critique the israeli government better than anyone like and they're like yeah. they're coming and talking about it now um i wanted to ask you you mentioned before we started in terms of kind of your busy schedule today, you talked about um, kind of things on Twitter, just for our listeners, like what's uh, being more specific, I guess the last couple of weeks, what we've seen um, in the wake of the events here in Israel, like what's your life been like? What are you seeing? Um, um, how do you deal with it? What are your thoughts on it? Um, it's a depressing place to be on social media at the moment. Like, what do you think? How depressing you most of the time, are you? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's two things. And it's kind of actually like my book. So somebody, Simon C. Bag Montefiore read my book and was like, oh my God, it's so depressing, but also very inspiring. And that's social media. It's so depressing, but also very inspiring. You have, you, I see thousands of Jews from around the world claiming their identity, being, you know, this, what Begin said, people are saying, steady your knees, no trembling knees. That we're really like, something has changed and social media has been where that has played out. And that is just remarkable. But yeah, on the flip side, it has just been, the volume has just been unbelievable. And it's been pretty horrendous and death threats and people saying the most horrendous, vile things. And, you know, my family live in Israel and the, my brother and sister live there with their spouses and they have small children. So, you know, when the war was taking place or when the conflict was taking place, it was scary from that perspective, too. But the thing that gets me through is that all of these negative comments I get, I just think, oh, you're racist. You hate me just because I'm a Jew. So, okay, well, I'm not gonna stop being Jewish. So I guess we'll agree to disagree. So I'm gonna block you. These are not people who can be reasoned with. 
And in a way, I think that, how do I phrase this? As someone who studied and teaches the Holocaust, there's, at least we know where we stand with the right. They openly hate us and like, okay, we know that, fine. But the thing that's about the left that we've touched on already is this gaslighting. And actually now the gaslighting is over because they're coming, their masks are off. And they're not really just talking about Zionists. You know, they're marching with pro-Palestinian marches with things of Jesus saying, don't do this again. You know, it's like, okay, you hate Jews. And we knew that, of course. But it's 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 not about ni- it's nice to be validated, but it's like, okay, we can see this plainly. And to be honest, again, as someone who, who teaches the Holocaust, this is maybe a bit morbid, but I, it doesn't surprise me. Like, I, I opened the book with this quote from my dad, the non-Jewish the non-Jewish world hates Jews. And I really believe that. And I think that what we've seen is just another manifestation of this. And it's kind of funny because I was teaching the Einsatzgruppen a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, Operation Barbarossa happened, I think, on the 22nd of June, 1941, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. And by the 25th of June, the Latvians and the Lithuanians were massacring Jews. And they were just waiting for an excuse. And it was almost... Someone said earlier, it's like the pleasure of anti-Semitism. It's really exciting and people love it and they're just waiting for an excuse to come out and get against us. And that's what we've seen. And it's gleeful. So that's very frightening, but it's also just our reality. And I think we have to accept it. And I know that's like odd because it's not about accepting it and, and you know, not combating it, but we have to understand the playing field. So yeah, it's been tough, it's been exhausting, it's been intense, but it just drives me on. Like, we're not gonna stop. We're not going to lay down and die. We're not gonna just dissolve our state. We're not gonna tell lies. Like, I will say very openly, I am for the creation of a Palestinian state, but I'm not prepared to tell lies to justify it. I'm not prepared to rewrite history to justify it. They, they deserve a state because they're there now, and that's enough. But as someone who's really, who is a historian, I guess, I find the rewriting of history to be incredibly troubling and and we're not going to accept it. No, we're not going to allow you to rewrite history. We're not going to allow you to drive us out of our homes. If we leave, we'll leave proudly and we're going to our homeland. We're not fleeing, we're not running away and we're not victims. We may have experienced prejudice, but we're not victims. We're survivors and we're resilient. And we've seen that, you know, today, just as we have in any other time in our history. Yeah. So it really is. It's it's this overwhelming strength, like sense of you know, like a big fu. Basically, no, we're not going to accept it. Yeah, and I mean exactly that sentiment you talked about before. How like you can't you can't separate these ideas from Judaism. Like literally, the words you were saying before. I'm thinking about in benching in Grace After Meals. We're saying like bring us standing upright to our land. Like don't go like you're saying. Don't go fleeing to our land. We should go upright with pride to our land. Like that's in benching. Like you can't. It's been there for thousands of years. Like you can't now decide that's not a part of Judaism. Yeah, and that I find is absolutely reprehensible. That there are Jews who are trying to purposefully sever this connection and they're rewrite they're attempting to redefine judaism redefine jewishness but we also have to recognize that they're victims and i I really enjoy calling them victims because they hate it but they're victims of internalized anti-semitism it's like who are you and we should treat people and i think a lot of people have internalized anti-semitism you know even people who are proudly jewish so we have to treat them with care and compassion and help them process it. But there does come a point, your if not now is your Jewish voice for peace, your Jewish voice for labor, say, no, you are anti-Semites, you hate Jews. I don't care if you're Jewish. 
Right. Yeah. You're just as dangerous, if not more. Um, I guess as we're kind of drawing to a close, in terms of sort of, I guess, for our listeners, um, practicals, tachlis, as we say, apart from number one, buying your book, what else um, should people be doing? What, you know, what can we take? In your, it's, like, like you mentioned about the book, it is depressing. Talking a lot about anti-Semitism can be, not, not the whole book is depressing, it's depressing and inspiring. But I'm saying the first bit of it, it can be like stressful to talk a lot about anti-Semitism. And I found being on social media recently has become pretty stressful. Um, the, I, like the irony of like, you go into the bomb shelter when there's a siren and you're stuck in there for like 10, 20 minutes. You're like, what do you, oh, I'll flick through Twitter or Facebook, let's see what's going on. And then it's like everyone, you know, who knows what you'll find on there. What, what, what can you tell our listeners in terms of, practicals what should they be doing what can they be doing um i guess finishing on a high i think one is join a community and that can be a synagogue it can be a community center or it can be online but do not be like don't allow yourself to be isolated because there's lots of jews who don't live in obviously israel who don't live in jewish centers even for me living in hong kong when alex and maddie left i was like oh i have no Jewish friends anymore. Sorry. So online has been kind of a godsend for me. Um, so there's that, I think. Surround yourself with Jews, surround yourself with Jewish life. The second is educate yourself. Understand that maybe the narrative that we have been taught, whether by Jewish organizations or not, or the non-Jewish world, may not be the complete story. So really understand, you know, what is anti-Jewish racism? Why are we connected to the land of Israel? You know, just understand the basic facts. And then the third would be is, fight back and again that can come in any way maybe you'll start wearing a kippah maybe you'll start lighting the shabbat candles maybe you'll start again saying hamotzi whatever it is maybe you'll start being an advocate maybe you'll start talking to your friends about it whatever way but i think it's we have to understand that we're allowed to advocate for ourselves we're, and we have to understand that we have a responsibility to the next generation to continue Jewish life. So whatever way that you think that you can play a part in that continuation, do it. Whether it's just at the beginning by following Instagram accounts, by listening to this amazing podcast, whatever, engage with Jewish life, because that's another thing we haven't even touched on. While we experienced all of this horrendous oppression for thousands of years, we also at the same time simultaneously created incredibly rich, beautiful, diverse cultures. And we're not just an oppressed people. We have unbelievable history we have so much music we have theater we have newspapers we have someone said the other day that we're like harry potter that we're like this little world in the bigger world we have our own newspapers and our own customs and our own fights but engage with that don't allow hate to define our identity we're not jewish because they hate us we're jewish because this is the community either we join or the one we're born into and it's beautiful and we should celebrate that kind of we should celebrate that. I mean, you said, but you said before, I mean, it was as if you were, you're quoting me because I'm wonderful. Um, no, as in, like, I, I remember sitting, I, the first siren that went off a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we jumped out of bed and ran to the, you know, grabbed my son out of his room and brought him into the bomb shelter where his sisters sleep. Um, and I just looked at my wife and I was like, I'd still much rather be here than anywhere else. There's literally nowhere else I'd rather be. Um, and I think that's... It speaks to, as you say, like this this incredible decolonization uh, effort 
um, or like same movement as in that Israel's it's not just that like we haven't become like cowering into somewhere like an arid wasteland and that you know we're just doing okay like Israel has flourished it's this unbelievable thing it's something that I think probably all of our listeners are aware of and have spoken about and thought about and, and, and read about that like you know the number of uh, Nobel Prizes per capita the number of of just everything you know the fact that it was like the only country to go into the 21st century with more trees than it had in the 20th and all these different things all, like what by whatever metric you have with the exception of perhaps like um, you know the the number of elections per month uh, compared to any other <laughs> any other democracy like with it, you know with it's it, called a vibrant democracy sorry, yes, Alex. Sorry. Vibrant <laughs> so even democracy. yeah even by the vibrancy of our democracy like by, by whatever metric you're using like Israel's not just this like it isn't just a place where we can come and, and be left alone it's a space where we're like we're we're safe yeah. and, and and the fact that even if you're sitting in LA or New York or London or Hong Kong um, or wherever else that like there is this this beacon um, in the center of it all that you can look to for support or for physical safety uh, or whatever it is. And I think it's, you know, it speaks volumes. And, and as you say, you know, to, to join a community, whether it's a physical one, um, whether it focuses on like the, the religious practice or if it's just a cultural, you know, exchange um, or online, that like there is this this thing about this, this you know, your comparison to Harry Potter, I think is brilliant. Um, that you know we we have this this whole world within the world that you know we can uh, fall back on um i mean I, I the conversation has has jumped back and forth and up and down and everywhere is there anything you think we've missed i mean it's the, the top, i mean this is a topic that doesn't lend itself to being discussed in in an hour this this as ben you and i you know when when we were in hong kong and I, again we apologize for leaving but you know uh, we're happy here um you know we would talk about these this for hours and hours and hours you know you and i we met by 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 chance a million miles from where either of us grew up and, and you know you you would come to us for friday night dinner and dinner during the week and we you know we talk stay up hours talking not just about anti-semitism we're not you know we're nerds but we're not that bad um you know but i mean i i think we've touched on enough and and i would say to our listeners you know to carry on the conversation you should First of all, buy Jewish Pride, and also follow you on Twitter and Instagram at Ben M Friedman, um, which I mean it will be. There is no effort in doing so, and uh, you'll certainly not regret it at all. Um, so I suppose the only thing left to say, at least from our part, is thank you again for joining us. It's been wonderful catching up with you, but also uh, great talking to you about this. And I hope we've given some sort of meaning, or at least some understanding, or some. A small amount of hope to to our listeners who may be uh, feeling a bit depressed. Um, at the very least, they're not alone. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, man. Well, that's all we've got time for for this episode of the Chrome Podcast. Thank you again to Ben M. Freeman for joining us. Make sure to follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ben M. Freeman and buy his book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, a link to which, along with some of the posts and videos we mentioned, can be found in the show notes. That's right. And if you want to get in touch with us uh, about anything we said throughout this episode uh, or any other episodes, uh, you can reach us by email, podcast at chromepub.com. Um, or on uh, social media at Karen Publishers. Um, and as always, uh, you can get 10% off your next order at karenpub.com using promo code podcast at checkout. Thank you for listening. <laughs>